Clearly, Sage didn't quite get my message that it was an invitation to stand and stretch. So, very warm welcome to you all. Um, uh, to start with, for those of you who don't know us, just to make some introductions. This is John, this is Akinchino, and that leaves me, I'm Christina. <laughs> Also, want to introduce Luis, who is uh, will be leading the yoga during the retreat and also lending us a hand when needed. And thank you for coming, Luis. Okay, so we arrive and we begin. And in many ways, I, I actually want to applaud your arrival. I'm. I'm very aware that for many people, you know, just getting to a retreat takes so much life rearranging and so much effort and uh, energy that, you know, it's, it's just worthy to honor that intentionality and that motivation that brings you here. So that's the first step, and I think in arriving here, even though some of you may be really quite tired after a day of traveling, uh, it's good to acknowledge being here and to have that sense of being able to breathe out. I know many of you will be stepping out of very busy lives, very complex, often very demanding lives, and, and to have really that feeling of, of stopping, of now being able to pause. I think for, for many people in the midst of those busy, demanding lives, people tell me they often dream of a situation like this, of you know, either coming back to IMS or coming into a retreat, because in so many ways this is really quite an idyllic situation. Um, how many of you live in a situation where, you know, people run around supporting you and putting meals on the table and making sure you have what you need and all of those kind of conditions? It's, it's pretty rare. And yet, given the perversity of the human mind... It's very likely within a day or two, some of you might be scratching your heads and wondering, what was on my mind to come here? You know, I could have been on a beach somewhere or I could have been doing something else. So just acknowledge that those thoughts indeed may arise. It's not an easy thing, although we can kind of sense the, the invitation of it and the possibility of it. It's not an easy thing to always just be with ourselves. Now, I read a quote once that said, you know, not everyone has the calling to be a monk or a nun, but everyone has a little bit of a monastic within them. You know, and I, I think that is often what brings us to a retreat, somehow that, that inner longing for some silence, some inner listening, some calm, some sense of being on a, on a journey inwardly, on a pathway inwardly. And in a way, coming on a retreat is almost like a quality of remembering, remembering that capacity and that potential inwardly. 
But it's not an easy journey. We, we were today reading a, a, a research trial with, that included really quite a, very, uh, quite a large population of people where people were offered the invitation to just sit and think for 10 minutes, just be with their thoughts, you know. However they were, just sit and muse away. And, or the alternative was to give themselves an electric shock. <laughs> now, mo- most, of course, would assume, you know, we'd much rather sit and think than give ourselves electric shocks. No. <laughs> Some people were giving themselves electric shocks like every, every 45 seconds, you know, just not wanting to be with this mind. And the unpleasantness of an electric shock was somehow more attractive. So we really appreciate your endeavor. <laughs> and we don't have electric shocks here or uh, any of that. But it, it's recognizing there is a second step. You know, you took the first step of getting here, and now there's a second step that begins. And in many ways, it's a kind of psychological, emotional reorientation, I think, to really consider for yourself what would be most helpful and most supportive for you to cultivate a, a greater sense and a deepening of, of inner quietude, of stillness. Um, and for many, I, I think, on a retreat, that, that commitment to cultivating that inner quietude and stillness really involves some choices. It involves some choices about how we engage with this retreat because there's a lot of different ways of engaging with a retreat. You know, one of those ways is simply to transfer every single habit pattern from our lives into a new location and just continue on with different furniture. But I think it's really a conscious choice about how we engage with a retreat. And certainly I think if, if I was to think of what conditions are most supportive for deepening in inner stillness and quietude. I think one of them is, is really having the willingness to, to just put down many of our habits of busyness, our habits of being in control, our habits of being in a hurry, our habits sometimes of overdoing, and our habits of judgment, and to, to quite consciously make the choice for stillness, to make the choice for kindness, and to make the choice for simplicity. I think this is one of those supportive conditions. I mean, here at IMS, we have a, a, you know, fairly lovely, but at the same time, a relatively simple environment, certainly compared to many people's living environments. And it takes something to really embrace that, and, and again, not to put into this environment some of those habits of busyness. So I would really encourage you to put down what you don't need, to put down what kind of occupies a lot of space. It's very helpful to, to put down reading, feeling, you know, in other situations. Of course, we encourage and support reading and learning. But in this one, if you think about what we do here, a lot of what we do here is about emptying the moment of what it doesn't need. You know, emptying the moment of, 
of, you know, always consuming, always filling ourselves up, always being entertained, always being distracted. And so a lot of it is putting down, emptying the moment of what really is not needed. It's not needed. And if, if you really look and explore what we do in the form of practice, how much it's a practice of, of kind of emptying, not negating, not erasing, not, not looking for some sort of ro- robotic, trance-like state, but emptying of all, all of those habit patterns that so, so clutter in a way, not only our lives, but also our minds and hearts. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, to be sitting and walking, engaged in a practice of emptying, and then filling up again, and then emptying again, and then filling up again. It doesn't actually help. So, so to really cultivate that, that love of stillness, I think, rather than feeling a kind of allergy to it. And I think what you, you know, what follows in the footsteps of being willing to put down the the reading and the distractedness is a genuine re- willingness to turn all the technology off. And I mean that so seriously. I, I just feel that, you know, silence has become such an endangered creature in our world. And solitude has become such an endangered creature in our world. And of course, if you have vulnerable people at home then that you need to check in with or, you know, anything of that nature then I really ask you to contact the office. They will give you an emergency. They will give you those, allow you to give those people an emergency telephone number where you can be reached. You know, because we don't want to, in, in kind of making a commitment to silence, also neglect those who need us in our lives. But if you're not in that situation, I really encourage you to, to be aware of how you use, you know, being plugged in and, and how it might be such a precious gift, really, just to turn it all off. And it's become such an addiction in our culture, isn't it? Always to be plugged in, always to be available, fear of missing out, you know. So to really turn it all off, you know. If you use your phone for an alarm clock, which I don't really encourage, put it on airplane mode, you know, where nothing comes in. Nothing comes in. And if you really feel that this is really hard for you, the office will be really, really happy to look after your phone, your laptop, your whatever you have with you for the duration of the retreat. And I can only say that it makes a big difference. It makes a dif- big difference. You know, If we seek solitude and stillness, it's really helpful not to keep bringing, bringing forth the triggers that kind of invite agitation unnecessary agitation in, into our life. So really, just an encouragement to do that. And, and I really encourage you also to listen, how, uh, listen inwardly to how you hear that suggestion. Because I know we say it on every retreat, and I know some people tell me they think it's for everybody else, but not them, you know, or, you know, or, or they already have this voice inwardly that says, oh, sure, you know, like I'm going to do that. So really listen to listen inwardly to how you hear that and, and the invitation of it, not the deprivation of it, but really the invitation to to know that this is often in our hands, you know, although there's so many conditions in the world we simply are not in control of. 
we are also not helpless. And that we have so much in our hands of really being able to choose the kind of climate that we're living in and resting in moment to moment. And I think if this practice teaches us anything, it teaches us really how much is actually in our hands in terms of changing the shape of our heart and minds of the moment and in a sense changing our world of our moments. Now we, we very much in a sense, uh, you know, walk this path alone, but of course we also very much create a retreat together. You know, we are a community as very much as we are alone, a community of, you know, so many people you probably don't know, you won't know their stories, you don't know their histories, and yet there, there is a shared commitment to being here. And we actually do create a retreat together by what each one of us brings and each one of us contributes in terms of practice, but also in terms of kindness, in terms of respect, in terms of acknowledgement. This is what a sangha is. And part of, I think, of creating a retreat together comes through our, our shared commitment to the silence of a retreat. You know, when I first started teaching, and indeed when I first started practicing, you know, we used to have a bit of silence and then a day of talking and a bit of silence and a day of talking. And, uh, you know, after a while I realized the, the, the actual relief of silence. You know, because the kind of silence we have here is never meant to be punitive or dis disengaged or dissociated. And I, and I know for many people in their history, silence has always had that flavor of being a kind of punishment or a withdrawal of love or a withdrawal of affection. But here silence is a gesture of kindness. It's a gesture of respect. It's, a, it's what allows us to listen inwardly. And it is something actually where you have the relief. You don't have to be somebody for eight days. You know, you don't have to present yourself. You don't have to, you know, come up with witty sayings. You know, you don't have to perform. You know, you can just be. You can just be however you are. And, and there's something, I think, so liberating about that in, in a world where we're so often being asked to, to be somebody for something. So really embracing, embracing so wholeheartedly, feeling the nobility of silence. You know, feeling that sense of being able to rest in it and that sense of being able to be uh, almost, you know, kind of self-reliant somewhat self-sufficient and inwardly respecting. You know, I think a retreat, you know, even very, very short retreats, you know, this is a sort of medium retreat, but retreats have the potential to be such powerful turning points in people's lives. So times of such deepening, times of such insight, you know, and, and what we do together, of course, is, is to cultivate the conditions that incline the heart towards that deepening, that incline the heart towards an under, a, a greater understanding and, and a greater sense of possibility. 
When the Buddha spoke often about beginning a meditative time, he would often offer the encouragement to to disentangle from the world and to establish ourselves in mindfulness and solitude. And this is not about pushing the world away or, you know, dissociating from the world, but disentangling and having a sense of what that that means for you, to, to disentangle and to establish yourself in mindfulness and in solitude. Good, we're gathered here to meditate. I'm really glad you could make the time. Um, as you just heard from Christina, the other people are paying money and accepting electrical shocks to be put out of their uh, the presence of their own mind, even for 15 minutes at a time. So uh, looking at it from that perspective, you're actually quite heroic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what we do is artificial, you know, retreats are an artificial situation. I would like uh, to acknowledge this. It is not uh, that we think that retreats are the better way of living and that you should make your life uh, correspond to a retreat life and turn all your loved ones into meditation obstacles and your job into distractions and your commitments into, you know, shackles. This is not the idea. The retreat format comes about uh, as an acknowledgement of the complexity in our lives, the speed in our lives. It may be a surprise to you, but in my monastic days, this was not a retreat was not actually a thing, uh, say the Thai forest monasteries were familiar with. The concept of retreat was not there until a few years ago. The Burmese tradition had it, but the Thai tradition didn't. The idea was that you lived in a way that was contemplative. You didn't need retreats on top of that. Um, and I think one of the reasons why retreats, as we know them, and we believe, some of you may believe that this is a you know, hallowed tradition or so, but it's not. It's barely 100 years old, if at all. Um, and it has come about through need, because... We live crazy lives. The speed, the throughput of information in our lives has increased. And uh, retreats are an appropriate expression of such a need and uh, they have something artificial about them. So we ritualize activities. We ritualize walking, sitting, standing, moving about, lying down. We ritualize these things. We slow them down and... um, Obviously, with, like with all rituals, you can turn routines out of things. Yeah? Now, a ritual and a routine both depend on repetition. The difference is that the ritual makes that ref- repetition a conscious act of mindful, mindful presence. And the routine is the opposite. You try to decrease the amount of attentional focus you spend on the things you have declared to be a routine. So, uh, retreats are an attempt to ritualize everyday activities and to shift the emphasis of our attentional focus. Habitually, and by training and evolution, we have most of our attention as 
involuntary attention focused outward. You know, that's what helps us survive. That's what helps us um, move through a complex world. Um, and we are tacitly led to assume that if we get good at manipulating our outside world so that we can cater to our uh, needs and then to our likes and then to our whims, um, that we have a better chance at becoming happy. And I assume most of you have had enough success at that type of activity to end up here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, assuming that you that there is you know that your presence here is an implicit acknowledgement that this hasn't worked you know? that if I could be happy by creating conditions that uh, generate happiness or that have at one point in my life generated happiness um, and have stopped doing so <laughs> sometime later uh, that this is not the whole of the story and so that's where Buddhist contemplative teachings kick in and suggest that happiness has a lot to do with the receiving end of those conditions. And we need to address what's happening at the receiving end here. And strangely enough, our attentional focus generally is outward. Yeah? So that's necessary for many reasons. It's probably not as necessary as most of us do it, but it is necessary for many situations in our lives. People depend on us attending to them. Um, our uh, lives have become dangerous if we don't manage these outside challenges. And yet, uh, quite clearly, however good we manage those, uh, our chances at becoming happy and fulfilled and content and uh, profoundly insightful, uh, don't really seem to correlate directly to the our capacity to maneuver things around in ways we find desirable in the outside. Yeah. There's some very stark figures about the correlation of, say, uh, economically affluent countries and the rate of depression. Yeah. If the sharing of good and affluence would make us happy, we should all be a lot happier than most of us probably would think they are. So retreats acknowledge that we have to learn to return the light. Yeah, we have to return the light inward and look at where that happiness is actually generated. So this is not easy. There's an acknowledgement, this is not easy. That's why we do things like retreats. That's why monasteries exist, retreat centers exist, places like this one exist, because it's not easy to do that on one's own. So we're trying to create, to the best of our abilities, to create safety. That's the first thing. Before I do experiments within my own psyche, I want to be sure that I'm safe. Yeah? And I hope you are safe. I hope you feel safe. Uh, the place is about as good as any meditation center in this world can possibly be. So if you are unhappy on that level, I, I have to tell you that you're probably going to be unhappy just about everywhere else. <laughs> yeah. we, I hope you have eaten something and you know where you sleep tonight. Um, um, we will do our best to create a gradual approach to basically Satipatthana teachings in the days to come and to 
contemplative exercises with a slight and delicate shift of emphasis in the course of the days. Um, the most powerful aspect will be your attitude. Do not believe that meditation really uh, hinges on technique. It's good to have methods, it's good to have techniques, but no technique, no method whatsoever will take you out of ignorance or will make you happy. More powerful is your own attitude. Think of this as a relational exercise, meeting your own inner world that will turn out to be less and less your own. Uh, but it has to be met on personal terms. You know, we meet each other on personal terms. There's a personal dimension to experience, a personal dimension to suffering, a personal dimension to uh, embodiment. And that is a fact. It's not an ideology. It's a fact. And we need to meet each other on that level as friends. I would really like you to acknowledge expectations you may hold for this retreat right now. It's always easier to live with acknowledged expectations. If they're fulfilled, wonderful. If they're not fulfilled, either way, it's better to have them acknowledged. Uh, the disappointment is less um, in insidious if they are known. Um, and the successes are better replicated if they are known. <laughs> yeah, either way, you're better off. So do try to take a moment and acknowledge with what expectations you come here. I'd also like you to ask to consider your notion of meditation broad. Yeah. Meditation is not just what you do on your cushion, alone, against the world, or worse even, against your own mind. Yeah. Um, meditation is everything that happens from now until the end of the retreat. Just I'd like you to acknowledge this is a basic notion of meditation. We'll tell you more about the terms and the um, losses in translation of these, some of these terms. But right now it's important that you make your mind, when you think of meditation, very broad. It includes all the people who are here. Meditation is a collective experience. Retreats particularly are collective experiences. We're not alone. We recommend solitude, we recommend uh, silence, and yet we are not alone. Yeah. And we want to acknowledge this. We build an atmosphere, we build an ambience here. And in that building of ambience, we all benefit from this. I know I will benefit from this, from your effort, and your willingness to help create and build such an ambience. Look at the moment, uh, a moment at your little secret agendas, not the big agendas, the little secret ones, the ones which you would never talk about. You know? If I was giving you some infernal advice for this retreat, I would say, think about yourself. Think about your story. Think about all the things you have missed. Think about what's missing in your own story. Use temporal adverbals, things like always, never, for the rest of my life. 
Don't meditate. Think things through. You know. Now you have time. Don't waste your time. Just sit here and think yourself into the ground. So, make wise use of this time. Be prepared that some of your plans may not be fulfilled. Acknowledge as much of your expectations and your agendas, the declared ones and the not-so-declared ones, to yourself. You'll be better off. And be respectful to whatever your mind presents. It may not be what you wish or you think you need or hanker for, uh, but if you attend carefully and friendly and uh, with intrepidity to whatever presents itself, that is the path, that is mindfulness, that is inquiry, that is practice. You know, the strength of our practice is shown where we don't meet with what we expect. It's where we meet what we didn't expect. That's where our practice really comes into uh, full swing. So I wish you a good retreat and hand over to John. (laughs) For some reason, um, when the three of us teach together now, I've become the... Um, what I would call the precept enforcer. <laughs> but before I speak about the precepts, I just want to kind of just say how wonderful it is to see you all here for these eight days. And I always feel a sense of privilege of uh, being able to sit here and uh, talk about the thing that's most, most passionately inspired me in my own life um, and just have that opportunity to share some of this with you. So I'd just like to say that right at the outset. When we come to when we come on retreat, well, you know, a lot's been said by both Akinchina and Christina about the retreat, but just another dimension to it. The retreat is also the attempt to, in a way, artificially create an environment as well as we can that's conducive to this difficult task of waking up. And one always has to remember this path, um, this path which includes meditation, which we're going to say a lot more about as we go over the eight days. Um, This path which includes meditation is a path which is dedicated to a process of waking up. Waking up in this life. Waking up to this moment. Um, The goal that the Buddha conceived of was not a goal of enlightenment, which I'm sure is a word you're all familiar with, but a goal of waking up. And what we do here Um, And in this environment is, if you like, small processes are beginning to wake up to what's actually going on for us here. So this is an important time uh, in this environment because often in our daily lives we're caught into those habitual modes and those habitual ruts. We're tied very much to them. And so we don't see these opportunities to really reflect on what is actually going on for us. You know, as Christina said right at the beginning, we live extremely speedy lives, re- echoed by Akinchino, also talking about how we have to create this almost artificiality to be able to begin to engage in this process. But I think it's worth remembering at this stage that that process is one that's dedicated to beginning to wake up. And it's often beginning to wake up to what is wonderful in our lives, but also what is difficult with them. Um, so it's not just it's not just kind of 
the downside, it's also the upside of life that we're looking at. What, what is good in our lives, but also what actually, what we might say is there's a great deal of room for improvement there. Which leads me to the precepts, because we can take these precepts, um, which are, I'm sure many of you have been on many retreats before, and you've heard them spoken about right at the very beginning of a retreat, just as I'm doing at this moment. Um, but I think it's worth always coming back to them because of actually some words that have already, already been mentioned this evening. One is the word agitation. Well, precepts are actually, if we try to look at them within our lives, they're ways of looking at sources of agitation and beginning to deal with them and lessen agitation. And the other, but most important for me particularly, I think is they are about respect. They are about respectful ways of living. Um, when you're a monastic, you get an awful lot of rules, over 200 of them, uh, to live by. And it varies from tradition to tradition. You, know, you can even have more in some traditions than those uh, basic 200-plus rules. Uh, as a layperson, at the most you get is 10. Um, we ask you to adhere to five, generally, on retreat. Um, but these five, in a sense, really capture the most important dimensions of this respectful mode of living. Respectful to ourselves and respectful to others. It's not just a one-way process, it's a two-way process. We can see them, in a way, short-changed often. And I often look with you know, kind, of, kind of quite a critical eye sometimes at some contemporary books on Buddhism when I see the precepts just listed and they're often listed in a very pared-down form. That pared-down form goes something like, don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't lie, and don't take drink and drugs. And I think it actually thereby misses out some of the most interesting points about these. Because when the Buddha actually speaks about precepts, when precepts are spoken about in general in the texts then they're done so in a way which presents them, A, as a rule of training. These are often referred to simply as training precepts. In the original language, in Pali, um, you know, the language of the Theravada tradition, but also the language very much of some forms of early Buddhism, uh, in that language they all start with, I undertake a rule of training. So these are ways that we train ourselves. Now we've been training ourselves for an awful long time in unethical behavior sometimes. So these are the kind of corrective to help us to remember. Um, when we start talking, as we will do over these eight days, when we start talking about sati, this word which is usually translated mindfulness, one dimension of that is remembrance, remembering something. So precepts become another form of mindfulness. They become another way of bringing us into the moment by actually beginning to look at our ethical behavior. And so when I undertake this rule of training for these five precepts, I'm undertaking a, undertaking a way of bringing myself into a present moment ethical relationship. And this is what we're doing. So that's kind of the preamble to it. Now, let's just, I won't bore you because you know, I know you're all tired, you've all had long journeys, but one of the things I just want to say is when we hear these properly, these precepts, I think they become far more meaningful to us. So instead of just saying, don't kill, 
the first precept says something to the effect of, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, I don't know how that sounds to you, but when I first started to hear the real versions of this, that sounded a lot more meaningful to me, because actually it was not just about not killing. When we start talking about harm, obviously the most severe form of harm we can engage in is killing, the taking of life of anything, any living creature. But it was also about harm in general, harming others. Now, we might not, and I suspect most of you wouldn't deliberately go out and kill. Sometimes we might swat a fly or a mosquito or whatever it might be that's irritating us, but we don't usually have that intention there. Uh, But we do engage in lots of acts of harm. Harm towards others and harm towards ourselves. And this precept is, in a sense, again, a process of waking up to our relationships of harm by then getting us to reflect on that in this present moment. Am I engaging in an act of harm towards myself or towards others? It's a question rather than a don't. And I think as questions, they're far more meaningful than, if you like, a very, very pared-down version of the Ten Commandments, Uh, which is one way that they can be looked at if we just have them as prescriptive rules, which is not the way they're meant to be heard. And so when we come to the second of the precepts, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking that which is not offered. Of course it's about not stealing. But we engage in acts, if you like, of appropriation in our lives, which are probably not considered to be by ourselves, more often than not, as theft. But they are still acts of appropriation. And so when we come into this questioning relationship, it's looking at all the ways that we appropriate. And let's take one thing that often many of us engage in. We will appropriate another's time. You will take it from them by demanding their attention. Yeah. We'll engage in those little thoughtless acts of appropriation, such as, I don't know, using a telephone that's not offered in the office, yeah. taking time um, to deal with personal correspondence in, I don't know, in a work situation. So I think we can probably project ourselves into many of those, you know, again, relational attitudes that we bring into a workplace and into our relationships where we're taking that which is not offered. As I often used to remind my students, you know, for example, taking others' ideas, yeah, that is an act of appropriation. It is an act, in a sense, which falls foul of this precept. So the precept is there to get you to think about that. The interesting one is the third precept, which usually gets, again, incredibly shortened down into don't engage in sexual misconduct. It's much more interesting, actually, than the original Pali. Because it's actually don't engage in sensual and sexual misconduct. You know, sexual misconduct might be put to one side on a retreat um, and quite happily put on one side, but sensual misconduct can abound. You know? um, dare I mention the word that often, well, I will say it, it comes up at this stage, which is something like food. You know, sometimes retreats can be basically um, food sessions interrupted by meditation. (laughs) (laughs) 
So when we look at this particular preset, we really are looking at, for example, the way that agitation is created because a lot of the artificiality of a retreat environment is the stripping away of all of your distractions all of the ways that we can you know, get ourselves outside of ourselves, not looking at ourselves, not engaging with waking up, not engaging with this process and remembering where we are and what we're doing. And, okay, they're stripped away, so what takes centre stage? Food. Yeah. So, kind of looking at that. But it's also looking, for, you know, looking at the way our eyes will seek out things for stimulation. And I don't mean just appreciation, but I mean actually going out in a way with eyes which are craving, ears which are craving, certainly I mentioned food, you know, the tongue that is craving something new, stimulating, tastes, whatever it may be. We are sensory beings, this is not about sensory deprivation, this is about appreciating those senses, but not overindulging them. In other words, not fueling them with craving behind it. So again, it's a means of looking at that because, um, as you will know, if you've looked at any of the early texts, one of the things that Buddha is always talking about is sensory cravings. Again and again, in all of the lists, it comes up about sensory cravings. Now, one thing might, might, might think that the Buddha has a downer actually on the senses. He doesn't. What he has is a downer on the craving that fuels a particular use of the senses. So we're looking at that. Sexuality is obviously a particular use of the senses. And so that's why it comes in this precept as well. But it's about the senses in general. Okay, coming to speech, which might be odd. We've asked you to be silent. This is what it is. It's a silent retreat. And so here I am talking about a precept about speech. But have you ever noticed that even when you're in silence, you're constantly speaking? You're constantly talking. As one German philosopher put it, you're talking when you're silent, you're talking when you're reading, and you're even talking when you're asleep. Yeah. We're constantly talking. We're beings who are immersed in language. And so one, obviously, meaning of this, I undertake a rule of training, etc., etc., to refrain from false speech. Okay, so that's looking at the stories that we tell ourselves, the distortions, the elaborations, the exaggerations in the narratives that constantly, constantly are going through our heads. And the narratives that we can weave about other people sitting in this room without ever having spoken a word about them, it's to them, I should say. Without ever having spoken that word, we're constantly engaged in storytelling to ourselves about others. So again, it's relational. Often this precept will get extended into other areas of speech. For example, harsh speech is the stories I'm telling myself about myself or about others, is it harsh, is it derogatory, is it condemning? Is it divisive? Wishing, for example, even thinking about home relationships of wanting to split one person against another, set one person in opposition to another person. Or is it simply gossip? 
idle chatter. So we have these kind of four forms of speech, and sometimes the precepts are actually spoken about in this way when we look at the speech precept. They're extended in this way by these into the four forms of speech. So we have, obviously, speech which is not accurate, which is not truthful. We have speech which is divisive, speech which is harsh, and also speech which actually doesn't say anything, which is often what gossip is. You know, we often, it's often translated as idle chatter. You know, and you all know probably what an, an engine is doing when it's idling, which is just switched on and not doing anything. You know, and that's what a lot of our speech does. It's switched on, but it's not going anywhere at all. So this precept is a way of beginning to examine that whole domain which we're absolutely deeply, deeply immersed in as the beings that we are which is this whole area of language and speech which is so important uh, in human communication. So, I could say this about all the four precepts I've spoken about, is they're not just rules, obviously, of training for retreats, but they're rules of training for our daily lives, for being out there in the world, engaging with others. They are respectful ways of living. Finally, we have the precept about basically taking substances which disturb the balance of the mind. I mean, in in the Pali, it specifically refers to things like strong drink uh, within that. And I think we can extend that because, you know, the usage of various drugs and uh, substances has increased a lot since ancient times, although they were present then. Um, We now have a whole range of substances which disturb the balance of the mind. This is an important one. This obviously does not mean prescription drugs. It means any kind of recreational substances that one might feel compelled to use. And to look at that. Look at what it's doing. Look at why we're using it and for what reasons. It specifically refers to this disturbance of the balance of the mind. And in many ways, it's a very important one to speak about on a retreat because of thinking about what a retreat is dedicated to. It's dedicated to that process of waking up. It's dedicated to that process of clarification of what's going on for you, what's actually happening to create a degree of clarity and spaciousness of mind which allows us to genuinely observe what is actually happening you know, at any given moment in your day, that you have that ability to be able to focus. If you think of what... We do, when we take substances which disturb the balance of the mind, in a way they're diametrically opposed. They're going in the opposite direction. They're going in the opposite direction to creating that clarity of mind. So the Buddha isn't just a prude, he's not a killjoy. He's basically saying, actually, this is not really, if you're dedicated to this path, this is not the direction you want your mind to be going in. On an ethical front as well, um, if I listed these precepts one above the other, starting with the first one at the top, going down to the, the, obviously the precept about um, you know, taking substances at the bottom, then you could actually say, why don't we take the last? Why don't we engage in the last one? Because of the danger of committing all of the above. Yeah, it's so much easier when the mind is unbalanced when it is fuzzy, when it is hazy, to engage in, for example, false speech, 
and speech acts we would probably not wish to embrace ultimately to engage in things like sensual and sexual misconduct to engage of course in taking what is not offered and sometimes even to engage in harmful and aggressive activities yeah there's a huge danger there so in this process of a retreat dedicated to waking up even albeit in small ways these are part of the holding containing environment that we respectfully offer to each other and to ourselves. So the precepts become, again, not punitive. They're not rules. They're not prescriptives. They are actually gifts that we give ourselves. And they're gifts that we offer to others. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we'll end the evening with just a very short... Uh, sitting. Um, do you need to stand up and have a stretch? If you do, please just take a minute, a moment to do that. So to find a posture for your body that feels as balanced, as soft, as upright as you're able to be. And perhaps just beginning with some contemplation, some reflection on your intentions in being here. to reflect perhaps on what it would be most helpful for you to, to put down in order to be here wholeheartedly. Perhaps to reflect on what it would be most helpful and supportive to cultivate in order to be here most wholeheartedly to Be a friend to yourself. And taking some moments just to to listen inwardly, to first to listen to the life of your body in this moment how it feels to sit, how it feels to be still. How your body feels in all the places you contact the ground or the chair, the cushion. It feels to have the air in your clothing touch your skin.
just allowing the thoughts, the images to calm, just to sit in the background of your attention. Not pushing away, not feeding. And since they're arising, they're passing, just like the sounds, just like the sensations in your body. Sensing how it feels to breathe, to feel your body breathing, the coolness and the warmth of the air. The feeling of your your chest or your abdomen expanding and relaxing. How it feels to inhabit your body, to inhabit your breathing, to inhabit this moment very fully. Sensing the moments of your attention departing from the body and what it is to return to a mindfulness of your body, mindfulness of the body breathing.
we begin and a real encouragement to to settle into a way of being here that is really rooted in in wakefulness, really rooted in a present moment, awareness as you go to bed tonight, as you get up in the morning, really being one of the first things that you can really put down is any sense of hurry or rush or urgency, that there's, there's a way of moving in this life uh, that is rooted in, in a calm abiding, a calm attending. Um, tomorrow there's no early uh, pre-breakfast sitting period, so the day begins with, with breakfast and the work period, but really an encouragement to really let that from the wake-up time to be the beginning of, of a meditative day. So taking that into the work period, in, into breakfast, so it's not kind of like waiting till I sit, you know, and then my, my day of meditation really begins. You know, my day of meditation begins when I bring in that moment, that attitude of, of, of inner collectedness, inner connectedness, and a sense of present moment uh, awareness, which is really cultivated moment to moment. Then at 8.15, we do have a formal sitting, and as in every day through the retreat, we'll be offering some some guidance and some input around the practice in those times. So I do hope that you rest well, and we'll see you in the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.